Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry, who's a barrel of laughs. Uh, and this is Stuff You Should Know. She gave us the old quick start. Yeah. Like, I don't want to hear anymore. I'm pressing record. Yeah, she knows that shuts <laughs> me up. Or at least cuts off whatever conversation I'm chiding her with. It was great. I'm telling you, if we could release the 20 seconds before each show as its own show, yeah, that would be terrible. No one would care. No. We'd think it was funny, but everybody else would be like, you edit this out for a reason. Yep. Uh, so, Chuck, mm-hmm. how you doing? Great. Have you ever been to Azon Provence, France? No. Is that a place? Yeah. No, I haven't. It is a, uh, a rustic little town in Provence, and it is, strangely, maybe even ironically, in the non-hipster use, but in the, the actual... Yeah. It's like a real word. Definition of the word. <laughs> uh-huh. um, also, cite to one of the most futuristic engineering projects humanity's ever undertaken. Meat, work, meat. That's the sound it makes. Oh, I thought you were <laughs> mocking me. No, no, no. For being thrilled by the thought of this thing. No, it is kind of funny that this thing's in a sleepy little town. It's yeah, like uh, a hamlet, maybe even. CERN in Switzerland. That's not in the, the city, is it? No. You can't build these things in cities. That's why they're in sleepy towns. Exactly. Because no one knows they're being poisoned. Yeah, and you can push the mare around pretty easy. <laughs> exactly. This thing is called ITER, I-T-E-R, which is an acronym for mm-hmm. the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. That's right. Which really gets the point across. Did you know the word acronym is an acronym? <laughs> That's not true. Okay. <laughs> I just want to see how long you would try and sort it out in your head. I would have kept going like another what it means. <laughs> 30 seconds maybe. That would have been a great joke. I could have just kept it going like, I'm not going to tell you. I would have been, I would have, it would, maybe 15 seconds. Cause you would have gotten that up. much more. Sure. So no, I wouldn't have looked it up. I would have figured it out <laughs> myself. Anyway, ITER is uh-huh. this a colossal engineering project. Somebody compared it to the pyramids at Giza. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's exciting stuff. Sure. Um, the thing is, is it's a nuclear fusion reactor and it's the culmination of decades of attempts to create a nuclear fusion reactor. Yes. Cause we got fission down and we'll talk about the difference in a minute. Yeah. Um, but fusion has been very elusive, and nowhere is it more apparent than in the ITER project. Yeah. Because this thing is going to cost it approximately $50 billion when it's completed. $50 billion. They started it in 1993. They're hoping to turn on the switch in 2020, but it's looking like 2023 or 2024. And it won't be starting to produce anything until the 2040s at the earliest. So what's the point? <laughs> I'll tell you the point. Yeah. If we can figure out nuclear fusion, Chuck, mm-hmm. the world's, literally the world's energy problems mm-hmm. will be solved for millennia. Yeah. If we can just figure this out, we will have a almost no radioactivity nuclear option. Yeah. Um. Almost limitless fuel supply. Yeah. Totally green. Yeah. No, clean. No no pollution, no greenhouse emissions. Right. And with plenty of energy to spare. Yeah. Using the already extant 
infrastructure we have to supply power. Like you don't have to completely rebuild everything. You can just to the electrical cables outside. Yeah, it'll be the exact same thing. Yeah, you can just go to a nuclear fission reactor and press the button that says fusion. And it'll all of a sudden join atoms instead of split them. Exactly. It's that easy. <laughs> that's what the difference is. With fission, you're splitting atoms yeah. and you're gaining energy from that. With fusion, you're smacking them together yeah. and you're gaining even more energy because we're, you're exploiting a different fundamental force. Yeah, and that – I was being coy. Clearly, there is no button because we would have pushed it a long time ago. Yeah. And when I say no pollution and no greenhouse emissions uh, before the pedantic among you write in, we know that – just even shipping something from here to there <laughs> causes pollution and greenhouse yeah. emissions. Good, good. But good. we're talking about the, the output of the reactor itself is very green. So if you want to know all about ITER, well, we're going to talk about it here or there because it's just you just can't talk about nuclear fusion reactors and not mention ITER. But if you want to know a lot about ITER, there is a really great article called A Star in a Bottle, um, and it's by a person named Rafi Kachadurin, or Durian, uh, and it was written in The New Yorker. Not too long ago. Yeah. And, man, it is every detail you want to know about the IDA project written really well. Um, and it's long, but it's totally worth the read. Yeah, it's all over the news lately, and for good reason. Uh, you said a lot of energy. I have a stat. Going to throw back to the old days here. Per kilogram of fuel, if uh-huh. we're talking fusion and fission. Lay it on me. Fusion produces four times more energy than fission. I saw seven. It's probably one of those things where it's like four to five to ten or something. Right. I found four times. And okay. ten million times more than coal. Yeah. Ten million times yeah. the energy as coal. Yeah. And that's with equal fuel per kilogram of fuel. Right. It's just, I mean, it is the future. Yeah. And you can say, well, that's great because we want 18 million times the amount of power that coal provides. You can say, well, there, buddy, you can also bring it backwards because- you can supply an awful lot of power uh-huh. then with a lot less fuel. Yeah, we're, we're like the advantages of nuclear fusion are mind-boggling. Sure, and and very few uh, downsides, which we'll get to, of course. But. Yeah, I mean, like really, genuinely, it's not just like some like here's all the great stuff about it, and just don't pay attention to all these like really horrible aspects. Yes, um, like there really aren't too many downsides. The downside is we are. At this moment, incapable of successfully creating a, a commercially viable nuclear fusion reactor. That's right. But we've got an a understanding of what the challenges are ahead of us, thanks to the last 50 or so years of really, really, really smart physicists working on the problem of nuclear fusion. Uh, and the great inspiration for nuclear fusion is the sun. The sun and all stars like it are enormous, immense nuclear fusion reactors. So if you are building a nuclear fusion reactor here on Earth, you're essentially creating a star. And that is a very difficult thing to do, it turns out. Yeah, the sun uh, creates, I know we talked about the sun in our very famous episode on the sun. Um, The sun creates 620 million metric tons. It fuses 620 million metric tons of hydrogen at its core every second. So every second at the sun's core, it produces enough power to light up New York City for 100 years. New York City? Every second. And that's the sun. And all we want to do is do the same thing on a much smaller scale. That's all? I think the guy, there's this kid who built one in his garage, and he said he wanted to, I saw this TED Talk, 
He wanted to create a star in a box, is what he called it. Yeah, I've seen it, like this New Yorker called it a star in a bottle. Yeah, this kid's name is Taylor Wilson, and uh, he's a, a nuclear physicist, and he's like 16. Wow. And he's he created like Hauser. Yeah, he's, he created a successful one. And um, the key, though, is not to be able to create the fusion. The, the key is to be able to harness enough plasma, which we'll get to, mm-hmm. at a high enough temperature and density for there to be a net power gain. Right. Like, you can create fusion, but in order to get out more than you're putting in is the only thing that matters because what you want to do is create electricity. Exactly. That's There's two huge challenges right now to nuclear fusion. We pretty much understand it enough to start it going and and get energy from it. The problem is, is material science isn't at a point where it can build a containment vessel to really house a, a, a thermonuclear reactor. Yeah. And then the other big obstacle is, like you said, net energy gain. Like if you're putting in as much or more energy than you're getting out of your nuclear reactor, then you're wasting energy, and it's the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, they're not just trying to impress people with their science knowledge. No, but up to they're the... trying to create energy. Up to now, though, Chuck, like every single thermonuclear reactor that's ever been built has just been impressing people with knowledge. Like, sure. Th- they haven't gotten any net energy out of a single thermonuclear fusion reactor. Yet. Oh, see, I have that they have... They're up, right now, they're up to like 10... Uh, Presently, they're at 10 megawatts. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And that's more than they put into it. A net gain of 10 megawatts currently. Uh, everything I saw was when we turn this thing on, it should have a net gain. Yeah. But I didn't see that they've actually done it. Yeah, 10 megawatts now, and Eider uh, is going to produce 500 megawatts Right. once it's fully operational. Right. So the, the, the next challenge then is this. If we're already getting a net energy gain out of it, then that means that the net energy gain is it's not sustainable. Like you said, you want to keep the thing going so you don't have to keep starting from scratch to power right. it up. You want it to basically be self-sustaining, yeah, so man. you just have to add a little more fuel to That's it. That's the, the dream. So let's talk about the history of, of fusion reactors, Chuck. Yeah, uh, it kind of goes back to this guy uh, named Lyman Spitzer. Mm-hmm. He's a 36-year-old Princeton astrophysicist, and this was in the 1950s. And he was recruited to work on the H-bomb and uh, went out and got a copy of, uh, of, a, of, of a paper that was released uh, from Germany, I think, right? That no, had done in uh, Argentina. Oh, Argentina? Yeah. They announced that they, Man, had, get that wrong? they had successfully built a fusion reactor. Right. So he gets this paper, uh, goes on a ski trip, starts thinking about how he can do this, takes a little break from his job building the H-bomb. And figures out, you know, I think it's possible if we can harness this plasma. I guess we should just go ahead and define what plasma is since we keep saying it. Well, there's there's the normal three energy states that we're familiar with, water, solid, and gas, liquid, solid, and gas, right? Right. There's a fourth one. It's plasma. And plasma is basically like an energetic gas where the temperatures are so high that whatever atoms you put into it, the electrons are stripped off and allowed to move around freely. Right. Basically, the surface of the sun is plasma. That's that's what plasma is. It's a gas. It's a roiling gas. It's really yeah. hard to control and is really unpredictable. Which is when you, you see the sun like that rippling, wavy-looking thing. That's plasma. Right. And the reason the sun manages to stay together is because it is enormously massive 
and has a ton of gravity at its core. Yeah, we don't have that advantage here on Earth. We don't. So we try to make up for that by increasing the temperature. That's right. And he was onto it way back then in the 1950s. If we can just harness this, if we can just get it hot enough. Uh, And he created a a tabletop device called the uh, (laughs) Stellarator. And it was in a figure eight uh, position. It was a pipe in a figure eight. Yeah. Uh, and this would keep things from banging into walls, theoretically. Yeah. And he was on to something because, well, we'll get to Lockheed later, but they're using a similar device now, a figure eight. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Which, I didn't realize that was a figure eight. It is, which is weird because what they eventually found out was that a donut shape was really the key uh, to get that net gain. So the and the and the reason that they found out that a donut shape worked was because in the, I think, the late 50s, um, the U.S. had run up against the wall. They're saying, like, okay, we, we've got this, but we can't control the plasma. Because think about it. What you're trying to do is create a star mm-hmm. inside something, but it can't touch any of the vessel that it's in, or else it'll just completely erupt it, right? Yeah, they compared it to uh, holding ru- jelly in rubber bands. Right. It, it was just, like, you can't... They, they couldn't figure out how to control the plasma. Yeah. So when when the U.S. ran up against this wall, they said, hey, rest of the world, we're going to declassify what Lyman, Spitz, Lyman Spitzer yeah. has been doing. Help us out. And, like, we'll share if you guys share. And it turns out that the Russians had um, already come up against this problem and licked it, they figured out that if you put the thing in a what's called a to- toroidal shape, a donut shape, yeah. um, y- using electromagnets, you can tame the plasma, essentially. And the, the, the donut shape itself was pretty ingenious, but the real stroke of genius was by running electromagnets in rings around the donut. So it's like you, you have a donut and you put a bunch of earrings around it, right? Yeah. And those are electromagnets, so you're creating an electromagnetic force field which contains the plasma. But then you also put a an electromagnetic force field in the middle of the plasma. So not only does it heat it up to the temperatures you want, it also stabilizes it further. So the Russians had invented what they call the tokamak, um, which is this donut-shaped nuclear fusion reactor that basically became the standard for the next... 50 years or so. Yeah, you basically could achieve a really dense, super hot plasma. Uh-huh. And we'll get into temperatures and stuff in a bit. But since we can't create that kind of pressure that they have in the sun due to their gravity, their gravity, the sun's gravity, right. you know, the sun and all those people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like you said, we had to make up for it here on Earth with temperatures. Right, because apparently if you are in a, um, a in the middle of a nuclear reactor, a nuclear fusion reactor, um you're going to find that the temperatures inside are about six times hotter than the core of the sun. Not even the surface of the sun, the core of the sun. And the reason why it has to be so much hotter is because, like you said, we can't we can't replicate that density. Yeah. We can get to those temperatures that we need, but we can't get to the density, so we have to make up for it. Um, so we'll talk about kind of the physics of what's going on here and why you have to have high temperatures and w- what we're making up for with density and everything right after this. So Chuck, uh, we're talking about nuclear fusion, and there's it's actually surprisingly understandable at its most basic core. Yeah, you're fusing atoms. It's not the hardest thing in the world to wrap your head around. Yeah. So with fission, 
we're splitting atoms. You're taking an atom and you're splitting its nuclei apart. You're splitting the neutrons and the protons a- apart from one another. And when you do that, one of the four fundamental forces, electromagnetic force, pushes them away and you get this burst of energy. Yeah. With fusion, you're taking nuclei from different atoms. You're taking protons and, and um, neutrons and you're smashing them together. And when you do that, you're unleashing what's called the strong force, which, appropriately enough, is stronger than electromagnetic force, which is why nuclear fusion yields more energy than nuclear fission. Yeah, Einstein himself said, you know, each time you smash these things together, you're going to lose a little bit of mass. And that little bit of mass is a ton of energy, Mm -hmm. as it turns out. That's right. The famous E equals MC squared. Yeah, and I don't think he realized in 1905, or maybe Einstein did. Einstein probably did. (laughs) Yeah, Einstein probably did. I would guess he did. Yeah. So the problem is, even though it is very easy, just smash some protons together, um, there is a tremendous amount of resistance to that smashing together. They don't want to smash together. No, because it's just like if you take a, a magnet, two magnets, yeah, and you put the positive poles toward one another, they repel one another, right? Yeah. Same thing. That's that's the same principle on an atomic level, too. If you take protons, which are positively charged particles, and try to put them together, they repel one another. And the closer you get them together, the stronger the, the repellent force is, the electromagnetic force, yeah. right? But if you can get them close enough, the electromagnetic force is overcome by that strong force, the strong nuclear force, and they become bound together. Because the strong force is that one of those four fundamental forces of the universe, and that is the force that keeps atoms together. And that is the, that force is stronger than the force that repels like charged particles. Yeah, and when you talk about close, they need to be within one times ten to the negative fifteen meters of one another. Right, so that is, fuse. if you'll indulge me. Sure. Are you going to read a bunch of zeros? Yeah. <laughs> it's point zero 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 one meters apart. <laughs> right. That's how close they have to be. That's right. Uh, to get them to accept one another and to fuse. Right. Um, I think I have a theory that if they they're not fusing because they think they're going to be made into a bomb. And if we told them that we right. were creating energy, they might be more willing to fuse together. Yeah, because protons are peaceniks. Everybody knows that. Sure. So when when they do fuse together, right, when you do cross that threshold and the strong force takes over and overcomes the electromagnetic force, um, like we said, a, a tremendous amount of energy is released. And it's released in part in the form of neutrinos, neutrons, right, which are right. neutral particles, which suddenly start carrying a tremendous amount of kinetic energy. So let's say you have uh, one atom, you got another atom, and they're both like, "Ah, I'm not getting close to you. We're not going to get to... Okay, we got together. Yes. That force, that that mass that's displaced is transferred through the neutron that gets kicked off of the atom, right? Yeah. And is carried out. Now, a neutron doesn't have any kind of positive or negative charge. It's neutral. It's a neutron. Yeah. Which means that it can pass through the very electromagnetic fields that are keeping this plasma where this reaction is taking place together. Once that happens, Chuck, it can go out to what's called a blanket wall in a thermonuclear reactor, warm it, and then that heat is transferred into a water cooling system. The water's warmed up, turned to steam, 
which generates a, uh, which I guess moves the turbine. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the turbine's producing electricity. Yeah. It's funny how it just, it gets so complex, but all you're right. still trying to do is create steam. Yeah. It's move like, it, turn a turbine. It's like hooking the ISS up to a horse. Right. You know, <laughs> move it over there. So there are a few types of fusion reactions. Um, the ultimate goal right now, what we can do on a small scale is what's called a, uh, deuterium tritium reaction. Yeah. That's the one that we can currently achieve. That's one atom of deuterium and one atom of tritium combining to form a helium four atom and a neutron. Yeah. The ultimate goal, I mean, that's good and that'll create a lot of energy, but there are a few downsides. Tritium is radioactive for right. one. Um, you have to mine it from lithium. Yeah. And lithium's fairly rare. Sure. Um, the ultimate goal is to, to reach deuterium-deuterium reactions, which is two deuterium atoms combining to form that helium-3 and a neutron. And you can get that from the seawater. It's abundant, mm-hmm. uh, almost limitless. Um, and I couldn't find this, but I think clean water can be a residual effect of this. Yeah. Am I wrong? I don't know if it's... if. Well, you're probably not injecting water, but to get the deuterium, uh-huh. I mean, desalination plants are the key to the future as far as supplying the world with fresh water. Yeah, I thought I saw somewhere where it was an actual byproduct. But, Is that right? Yeah, but then I couldn't find it, so I'm not sure if that's right or not. You know what? You just jogged my memory. I feel like in a hydrogen-powered car, water is one of the byproducts. So maybe so. Yeah. All right. Don't quote me on that, though. Um, At the, the very least, it's a great way to create energy. Right. And, yeah. and what, what's, uh, you also can get, um, tritium from helium, I believe. So even now with the, the deuterium tritium reactions that we're working on, there's, there's already a, a, there's a workaround, you know, like you can create a thermonuclear reactor that's a breeding reactor to where the byproduct, helium, can be used to harvest more of the fuel you're using, tritium. Yeah, and aren't we running low on helium? We are, which is like, remember when we were talking about in the the dirigible, the Zeppelin? Which one was it? Blimps, well, how blimps work. Yeah, and then a long time ago we d- did one on... Uh, what the was Mars it? turbine. Yeah, Mars turbine requires yeah, helium. But yes, there's very clearly a helium shortage, and the idea that we're just using it for party balloons rather than this yeah. is scary. Yeah, and don't be confused. We say things like deuterium, and it sounds super complex. All that is hydrogen with an extra neutron. Yeah, it's an isotope. Yeah. So there's three isotopes of hydrogen, and they're all still the same element. They're all still uh, hydrogen, but they have different configurations as far as their neutrons go. So protium is a hydrogen isotope with one proton and no neutrons. Deuterium is a hydrogen isotope with one proton and one neutron. And tritium is a hydrogen isotope with one proton and two neutrons. And like you said, tritium is radioactive, but the beauty of it is you need very, very, very little of it to to fuel a nuclear fusion reactor. And it becomes a stable helium, a non-radioactive helium in the reactor. So you don't have this leftover radioactive fuel. Isn't yeah, that awesome? I think they said there's an, it would be equivalent of the radiation we just see every day and walking around on the street, right? Yes, the, the background radiation, I believe. I saw that too. The thing is, is the parts to the nuclear reactor themselves will become irradiated over time. Apparently, though, compared to the kind of radioactivity that's generated from nuclear fission, 
Um, this stuff you could just disassemble and bury in the desert for a hundred years, go back and dig back up, and it'll be totally inactivated. So it's it's it, the stuff that is radioactive is extraordinarily manageable. Yeah, it is. And um, like I said, we don't want to make it sound like this is perfect. There is uh, they do predict the short to medium term radioactive waste problem, uh, and they say that's due to activation of the structural materials. Right. The the actual thermonuclear device itself. Yeah, and while you don't need much tritium, uh, even a few grams of tritium is problematic. Um, but hopefully, you know, there's no accident. Although they say accidents with these, um, as if you just turn the power off, it stops everything. Yeah. It's not like a chain reaction can occur, right. like a fission uh, reactor, there's not where a it's melt- out of your control. There's not a meltdown, There's which also, if you want to know more about that, go listen to our How Nuclear Meltdowns Work um, episode. That was pretty good. We released it right after Fukushima. Oh, yeah. But it applies to all fission um, reactors. That's right. So the goal is ultimately deuterium-deuterium reactions. Where you're that pairing those clean. together. It does. <laughs> and the reason why is, again, it's abundant fuel. You can get it from desalinating seawater. And then, um, secondly, it's not radioactive at any point. So it wouldn't make the, the thermonuclear reactor itself radioactive. Too. That's right. The reason why we're not doing that already is because we can't achieve the temperatures necessary. That's right, which leads us to the two big stumbling blocks. Um Everyone knows this is a great idea. There's no one out there saying, oh, I don't know about this fusion thing. Uh, creating a star in a box sounds kind of weird. Uh, the problem is the the barriers that we have here on planet Earth, um, which is one, temperature, and two, pressure. Uh, we have achieved the temperature, which is uh, the requirements is 100 million Kelvin. And like you said, that's about six times hotter than the sun's core, mm-hmm. which is pretty intense. Um and the other is pressure. Uh, like we said, we need to get them within, I'm not going to make you read all those zeros again, but smash, <laughs> smash them that close in order to fuse. And since we don't have that kind of mass and gravity that the sun does, there are a few pretty genius ways that we're working around that. Uh, yeah, there's basically two as it stands. And then the Lockheed Martin one, which a lot of people are skeptical about, we should say, yeah, is well, kind of a variation on the on one theme. But there's basically there's two ways that we've figured out to create nuclear fusion reactors so far. One is using magnetic confinement, uh-huh. and the other is using inertial confinement. So magnetic confinement <clears throat> uses that tokamak technology. Yeah, it's sort of like CERN. You know, it's using magnets mm-hmm. to to create pressure. I guess in CERN's case, you're using it to create speed. Right. But uh in this case is to create pressure. Right. So what you're doing is is you have a um you have this donut shaped chamber and that's your reaction chamber and then again rings around the donut that go on around the inside and outside of the mm. donut. I know I'm kind of <laughs> imagining wonderful donuts We're too. We're going Homer Simpson here. <laughs> um they create electromagnetic fields. Now remember this plasma is hydrogen gas that's been heated up to a temperature so hot that the electrons just float off and move around freely. Yes. And because of this higher temperature, these particles have become really, really energized. So they're moving and bouncing all over the place, and the pressure's building up. But because electrons are negatively charged and because protons are positively charged, if you use alternating electromagnetic fields, you can contain this plasma so that this incredibly hot gas that's six times hotter than the core of the sun can be contained within the electromagnetic fields. That's right. 
and uh, we talked about power in, power out. It need you need about seventy megawatts of power to create this to start this fusion reaction, but you're going to yield about five hundred megawatts. Uh, that's the ITER project, I believe. Yeah, that's the ITER, and that's um, that's only a three hundred to five hundred second reaction. But like we said earlier, the eventual goal is that it's sustaining itself, right? Uh, which is just a beautiful concept. Yeah. So basically, what they do is they have the um, the the gas is injected into the chamber, the hydrogen gas, mm-hmm. and then there's the electromagnetic fields that are holding the plasma in place. But then remember, we said the Russians figured out that if you put an electromagnetic field in the middle of the whole thing, it will stabilize that plasma, but it also heats it up. So it serves this double purpose. And then just to add a little extra temperature, they shoot it with microwaves and some other stuff yeah, and then heat it up. And then as the plasma goes crazy and all the fusion energy is released, the neutrons move their way outside of the electromagnetic field into the blanket, which they heat up, and the heat energy is transferred to power that turbine that's or right. move the horse down the down the lane. And it's just creating steam. Yeah, and there's, I mean, that's like, that's what ITER is doing right now. That's what they're trying to prove. Um, and then also, as ITER is spending billions and billions and billions of dollars and running into tons of delays, yeah. um, it's an amazing project. Uh, Lockheed Martin basically just came out and said, oh, by the way, this thing that you're trying to do that's going to be 100 feet tall and require uh, staggering amounts of energy and money, we're doing one that puts out the same amount of energy as yours, but it's a tenth of the size, which means it's almost out of the gate commercially viable. Yeah, that is their Skunk Works um, division of Lockheed. And they announced this like three days ago. Uh, here in mid-October, and um, they've gotten a lot of blowback from yeah. the scientific community. Because they wouldn't release data. They don't have data. They said it's a high beta device right now and kind of shut out the scientific community as far as questions go. Right. And um, every scientist that I saw interviewed for this said, yeah, they're they're trying to get some attention to get some partners to join in. Well, yeah, plus it makes you want to run out and buy Lockheed Martin stock because if yeah. one company <laughs> exactly. can figure out how to create a thermonuclear fusion reactor here on Earth that's scalable. That fits in a truck. Yeah, then yeah. That, that, that person would be very wealthy. Yeah, so it's a dubious claim, but they are, you know, they're working toward a good thing. I'm not like poo-pooing the whole thing. Right. But until they have hard data and like some proof. Then I think the scientific community's got their arms folded right now. Yeah, and and I mean they have released some details. It's just not detailed enough for a scientist. It's detailed enough for Aviation Week. They I bought it. An, yeah, <laughs> they wrote an article on it, and basically what they what the guy they interviewed was saying was that over at ITER they have a low beta ratio, which is the amount of electromagnetism that you need compared to the amount of plasma you can put into the chamber. Yeah. So there's like 5% plasma to 95% electromagnetivity. Right. Or electromagnetism just to keep this plasma thing from just blowing up. Right. Because that can happen. Sure. They might not melt down, but if everything went wrong, the whole thing could blow up. Well, and- you know, you know what an atomic bomb is. It's it's a fusion reaction. Right. This is a lot of those all put together yeah. in one hundred foot um, tower. Uh, this guy was saying that the beta ratio for their machine is like one hundred percent. So what he was saying is they figured out a way, and again, it's not very detailed. Sure. But they figured out a way to contain the plasma, but in a way that also allows it to expand. Yeah. Because if you think about it, the more plasma there is 
the more hydrogen atoms there are. Yeah. The more hydrogen atoms, more isotopes there are, the more nuclear fusion reactions or events you can have, the more energy you can yield, right? Yeah. So they're saying they figured out how to contain the plasma. But again, like you said, the scientific community is really skeptical because they think it's just a PR stunt. Well, I think they made the mistake by saying they invented a, a magicometer to make it all happen. <laughs> and, that's, and don't ask about it. Yeah, right. I did see, though, that where Lockheed was using the figure eight, the uh, Stellarator configuration. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's true. I tried to, I found a couple of more sources that were kind of vague about it. And I think the details on it are just vague, period. But yeah. I don't know why they would abandon the donut shaped if the uh, figure eight was. Uh, you know, 1950s technology that's sort of been disproven. Well, supposedly their whole jam was that the even in the donut, in the tokamak, yeah. this donut-shaped um, reactor, plasma has a tendency to just move around and, and make its way out. Sure. Like it's not, it's still not fully contained. Yeah. And they're using something, um, basically mirrors, to catch the plasma that's getting out and moving it to parts of the electromagnetic field that are less dense. So right. if there's a bunch of protons in this part of the field, that field is being strained, mm-hmm. but then maybe there's not that many protons over here, so they use mirrors to direct the protons to the low-density area of, keep it the, all even. of the field. Yeah, to even the whole thing out, that which makes, makes sense. sense. But yeah. again, if you're not releasing data, don't expect the scientific community to buy it. You got that right. So l- there's another way to build a, a thermonuclear reactor that's uh, currently being worked on, too. And we'll talk about that right after this. So, buddy, magnetic confinement is pretty neat. And we talked <laughs> about that, and that's uh, understandable, and I, I love it. I want to date it. But internal confinement, I want to marry because it has lasers Uh Um, at the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. They are actually using laser beams. Uh, They have a device called the NIF device where they focus 192 laser beams on a single point in a 10 meter diameter target chamber called uh, a Hallraum. That's got to be German. Mm -hmm. And basically uh, inside that target chamber, they have a little tiny pea sized pellet of deuterium tritium in a little plastic cylinder it's funny that it can be plastic somehow. <laughs> yeah, you'd think it would introduce like impurities or something into it. Yeah, or it would need to be like iron or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just seems unstable. But uh, that is 1.8 million joules of power from these lasers. It's going to heat the cylinder up, generate some x-rays, and then that radiation will convert that pellet into plasma and compress it. So, again, they're creating plasma, but instead of smashing it together with magnets, they're Superheating it with lasers. So that's your that's your your money's on that one. You like? That I just one think more. it's neat because I like lasers. But that's your preference of the two. Yes. Well, actually, whichever one works is going to be my preference. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that one will yield fifty to a hundred times more energy, um, more energy out than energy put in. I gotcha. So that's that's a good goal. So um, yeah, I guess basically the whole point of magnetic confinement is that if you can do without electromagnets, you're you you have a more simple and elegant. Oh, you solution. mean the internal confinement or uh, uh, inertial? Inertial. Yeah, that's what I mean. Inertial confinement. Basically, the whole thing just happens so fast. You don't even need these magnets to confine plasma because you're not creating the sustained ignition, right? Yeah, I might have said internal confinement before. By the way, it's inertial. Yeah, I know. That's all right. So, what about cold fusion, buddy? That was all the rage. I remember back in the eighties. 
Yeah, because in 1989, some researchers said that they successfully created nuclear fusion using um, just room temperature stuff, like palladium. They took palladium and... Um, Banana they, peels and beer cans? <laughs> pretty much. Uh, heavy water, which had uh, deuterium in it. And they put the whole thing together and created nuclear fusion without the high temperatures, hence the name cold fusion. And if you can get around these high temperatures, then you work out the whole material science problem, right? And if you work out the whole material science problem, then this is it's a desirable thing to have cold fusion. The problem is is all, a lot of scientists tried to replicate these guys' findings and weren't able to, so basically they were kicked to the curb. So does that mean is, has cold fusion been abandoned, or are people still trying to get on that train? No. In 2005, some UCLA researchers basically said um, – we think we might have this thing down. And they did. It's something called um, pyroelectric crystal fusion. Oh, pyroelectric right. fusion. They use a crystal? Yeah, where basically it's the same result. They they do what would be called cold fusion. Um, the problem is, is it has a negative net energy yield. You have to put in a lot more energy than you get out of it. Right. Well, that's no good. No. Um, Eider seems like they... Uh, are making headway more than Lockheed, despite their claim. Um, they are being, like we said, it's in Europe, and it's being financed by a bunch of different countries. Um, the U.S. is in, but they're kicking in, I think, the least amount, only about 17 million euros uh, last year. Of course, we contributed dollars, but they're giving it to us in euros. Right. Um, I think the EU spends the most, about 80 million, South Korea and China, kicked in about 20 and 19 million respectively each. And I saw earlier where Russia was involved but then I didn't see what they had contributed financially. Yeah, so they're I'm definitely not sure. involved. Are still. they still? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, maybe they're just uh we're writing a chit for them for later. They'll just pay us back. <laughs> right. Uh but it is a very expensive prospect um and you need, you know, countries getting together for something like this. It's not the kind of thing that like the US can take on on their own, I guess unless you're Lockheed Martin. Right. And you don't have to prove your data. Right. So this nuclear fusion, we'll see what happens. Yeah, you got anything else? Man, no, I just say everybody should go read uh, Star in a Bottle on The New Yorker. It's really, really good. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Um, there, You can also go to Instructables if you want to build a uh, nuclear fusion reactor in your garage. You can do so. Um, you're not going to create energy because, like we said, you're going to be putting in more than you get out. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are instructions, and that kid did it. His was a little more advanced than the Instructables one, obviously. But, um, yeah. Nice. The might... 16-year-old kid. Yeah, he's amazing because his was legit. He's done more than that, too. His TED Talk was pretty impressive. Cool. He's, like, working on uh, with Homeland Security already for various projects oh, I'm that sure. have nothing to do with this. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, well, if you want to learn more about nuclear fusion, you can type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. And Chuck, before we do Listener Mail, I want to um, give a shout-out to our Kiva team. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, we did a podcast many years back on micro-lending. Uh, and Kiva, K-I-V-A dot org, is a organization where you can loan uh, entrepreneurs and well, it used to be just developing countries. Now you can do it here in North America as well. Uh, $20 at a time that you can get paid back for. You can get your money back if you're not happy. Or you can just keep reloaning that money. 
and it helps them get their small business going. And we started Kiva Team many years ago, and it is killing it. Mm-hmm. So you got some stats for us? So basically, as of October 19th, um, we have loaned, our team has loaned $2.7 million to people in developing countries. Nice. And in the U.S. here yeah. or there. Um, and the big one is we've exceeded 100,000 loans Man. by our team. Our team only has 8,079 members. So yeah. to all 8,079 of you guys, thank you. Way to go. Congratulations. Yes, and thanks as always to Glenn and Sonia, our de facto Kiva uh, what would you call them? Presidents? Presidents. Presidents of the Stuff You Should Know team? Yep. Captains of the Stuff You Should Know team? No, presidents. Okay, presidents. <laughs> Presidentes. Glenn's like, yes, president. Uh, yeah, they've been really, like, keeping it going for us. Yeah, and when, you know, sometimes we'll forget and Glenn will nudge us, hey guys, uh, remember the Kiva team, we should mention it. Right. So the next, so. the next goal we have is for three million dollars in loans and we're on our way to it. So come join us. We, uh, don't begrudge people who are late to the party. Just go to kiva.org uh, slash teams slash stuff you should know and you can sign up. That's right. So now it's time for listener mail, right? Indeed, sir. I'm going to call this a uh, skywriting follow-up um, from Australia. Hey, guys, recently listened to how skywriting works, and it reminded me of something. Although this may not be suitable for listener mail, which I disagree, actually, because I'm reading it. I was maybe eight or nine when a few friends and I were out on the street playing uh, and doing things that nine-year-olds would do. It's so awkward to say that. So you're not replacing something right there? No. Um, They were just doing nine-year-old things. Okay. Good, clean fun. Uh, We looked up and saw a plane starting to skywrite and were uh, instantly intrigued at what was being written. It started with an H and then an O. This went on for maybe 20 minutes until finally the word Hooters was scrawled across the sky. Uh, albeit backwards. So, uh, I guess they have the Hooters restaurant, uh, chicken wing chain in Australia. I guess they're a, a rich kid. Yeah. Really <laughs> immature rich kid. Yeah, or that. Uh, my brain couldn't comprehend how this person managed to screw up writing a word backwards. Uh, the best reason my childish brain could come up is that skywriting took place somewhere between us and a group of people uh, that it was initially intended for, and that I just thought it was written up and downwards rather than across the sky. Um, until now, I never understood or bothered to learn why it was like that. So thank you for keeping the podcast great and uh, allowing me to figure that out. That is from Marlon. Oh, boy. Hapurachi. Uh, Hapurachi. Nice. Have you ever seen a word like that? Hapurachi. Hapurachi. Marlon. From Sydney, Australia. <laughs> Man. Thanks a lot, Marlon H. And that's Marlon with an A, even. Oh, yeah? Marlan. Huh. Well, thanks a lot, Marlon. <laughs> We're going to say it like that. Sure. Uh, if you have an awesome last name and want to share it with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. <laughs> For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 